0: so this morning, we'll be in a lot of different places rather than our study through the book of John. It's become a kind of a tradition at our church that the last of the holiday season sermons is a prophecy update. So we'll be doing that this morning. We'll resume our study of John's gospel next Sunday, which means we'll be over, all over the, the map in the Bible today. So if you want to follow along semi-closely, you can turn to Ezekiel 38 and 39 as well as Isaiah 42. So Isaiah 42, what we read in our scripture reading, but we'll read the latter part of the chapter at the end of the message, and then we'll start off in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Ezekiel 38 and 39, a lot of references in between, and then we'll close out with Isaiah 42. And as always, if you're in need of, like you miss a verse that I reference, we always put the verses that were referenced or used in the message online when the message goes online, or you can just find me and I'll be happy to share my notes with you. So what is a prophecy update? Well, let me tell you what it isn't. It is not, I'm not coming here to tell you what's going to happen because that's not our job. God's the one who's already told us what's going to happen, so our goal is to look at what God has said. So When we look at the Bible, 27% of the Bible is prophecy. Some of it has already been fulfilled, some of it hasn't happened yet. So the goal of a prophecy update is to look at a few of the things the Bible says about the future that haven't happened yet, and how they apply to the events we see going on around us. Now, the hardest part whenever you do a prophecy update is picking which prophetic topic to talk about, because covering all of them on one Sunday is impossible. For example, do we discuss the prophecies about the emerging global mentality that will be in place during the Great Tribulation, the global currency, global government, things like that? We could do that. We could talk about the results of the annual BRICS Summit this year. If you're not aware of what BRICS is, it's an intergovernmental organization founded in 2009 by Russia, China, Brazil, and India. The group's focus back then was on improving, it says, the global economic situation and reforming financial institutions. They emerged from that first summit in 2009 by announcing a need for a global reserve currency. They added South Africa to their group in 2011. In 2014, they met that goal. They announced the creation of the New Development Bank to rival the World Bank. In 2023, the group invited Egypt, Ethiopia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates to join their bloc. Those nations accepted. And they became full members on January 1st, just two weeks ago. Their aim at this latest expansion is part of a plan to, quote, build a multipolar world order. Their 2023 summit in South Africa committed to the feasibility of, quote, a new common global currency. Now, Daniel 7 teaches us that there will be four major world powers on the scene in the end times. But we know from other scriptures that these four powers will have coalitions behind them. For example, in Revelation sixteen twelve, it mentions the kings of the east, that they'll invade the Middle East during the campaign of Armageddon. The fact that there are kings, plural, means it's a multinational coalition, right? Revelation 17 verses 12 through 14 mentions that the Antichrist will head a coalition that includes 10 other kings. So, for years, the church has talked about the EU or some other form of it possibly being the revived Roman Empire that Daniel prophesied about, but the church doesn't talk much about the fact that we should expect to see rival coalitions forming all around the world. BRICS is just one example of that. It is simply the economic side to the military partnership that already exists, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, that already includes China, India, Russia, and Iran. BRICS is the world's largest regional organization in terms of geographic scope and population, covering 40% of the world's population. So the climate during the Great Tribulation will be one where coalitions of nations exist, global government, global currencies, things like that. Things are trending more and more that way each year, and we could spend our entire morning discussing those prophecies, but we're not going to. Do we discuss the increasing apostasy in the church? We could do that and spend all Sunday just on that. We won't do that this morning. We could talk about the things that will lead to the rise of the Antichrist, but we're not going to do that this morning. Or we could discuss how things might be moving closer to the invasion of Israel described in Ezekiel 38 and 39. We will do that this morning. Why? Why? Well, 2023 was an interesting year because it began without much of, to speak of concerning prophetic events. I mean, so much so that the hottest items in the news were a series of Chinese high-altitude surveillance balloons. Remember those? A new monarch for England and chat GPT. Earlier in the year, Ukraine launched a counter-offensive that many believed would break Russia's hold. But the battle lines barely moved. In fact, Ukraine's top general described the fighting as a stalemate, turning it into a war of attrition, something that highly favors Russia. Russia's not going away. The Bible says they won't. Things had died down outside of the Russia-Ukraine affair globally so much in 2023 that National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan declared at the end of September, quote, the Middle East region is quieter today than it has been in two decades now. Those words did not look good about eight days later. Because eight days later, on October 7th, Hamas committed the horrific atrocity against Israel. So, while we could talk about the Russian bear of Daniel 7 and how Daniel says it will be in a phase of conquest when the Antichrist rises onto the scene, or many other topics most important event that occurred last year as it regards prophecy is the Israel-Hamas war that's still going on today. That event touches on three prophetic topics that are important for us as believers to understand. Number one, the coming invasion of Israel by multiple nations that Ezekiel predicted in 38 and 39 of his book. Number two, the revival of hatred and violence towards Jewish people during the Great Tribulation. And number three, God's call for His people to face the time before the Great Tribulation with hope. Those are the three things we're going to look at this morning. And my heart is that if we look at what the Bible says about what happened on October 7th and look at the aftermath of that, that the Scriptures will give us that hope, hope for today and for tomorrow, that God is still God and that He still has a plan and that we can know His presence even in dark days if we'll walk closely with Him. So, let's look at Ezekiel 38 and 39 first. Ezekiel 38 and 39. Now, the context of Ezekiel 38 and 39 is Ezekiel 37 goes right with it. And Ezekiel 37, it predicts the rebirth of the nation of Israel. Now, in verse 8 of Ezekiel 37, it says there'll be something interesting about Israel when it's reborn. It says in Ezekiel 37 verse 8, and when I beheld, lo, the sinews in the flesh came up upon the bones, and the skin covered them above, but there was no breath in them. Ezekiel has this vision of all these dry bones, and the Lord asks him and says, you know, hey, son of man, can these dry bones live? And Ezekiel's like, I don't think so, but you're the Lord. You know. I don't know. Can they live? And he says, tell them to live. And that's when he says, he tells them to live, it says that he spoke to them, he prophesied to them, and the bones became like a skeleton, a full skeleton. And then muscle and skin and everything came on it, but they weren't alive. Well, what that's explaining is that when Israel becomes a nation again in the last days, they will be there in unbelief. And that's what happened in 1948. In 1948, the nation's independence was spearheaded by a group of Jewish men who were largely secular. They were not believers. They were not believers in anything. They were atheistic. And so they were founded in unbelief and that's their condition now. Not necessarily atheistic, but they don't follow Jesus. The majority of Israelis do not follow Jesus as Messiah. 45% of Jews, Israeli Jews, self-identify as secular. That's almost half. And of over the 7 million Jews who live in Israel, less than 50,000 profess faith in Jesus. So we can say with absolute confidence that all but the final phase of Ezekiel 37 has been fulfilled. They're in the land again, as God said, and they're there in unbelief. Now, that will change at some point, but right now, that's where they are. So most of it's been fulfilled, almost all of it. Ezekiel 38 and 39 follows upon what will happen to cause them to come to faith, and it will be an invasion. This is a single prophecy in these two chapters that refers to an event that happens after Israel becomes a nation. An invasion of Israel led by Russia, but also includes the nations of Turkey, Iran, Sudan, a couple other North African nations in that region that are hostile to Israel this day. And then Ezekiel 38, verses 10 through 12, it describes the conditions in Israel when that invasion occurs. He starts the chapter by saying, Russia, I'm talking to you. Prophesy. He says, Ezekiel, talk to Russia. Because. I'm going to put a hook in their mouth, and I'm going to pull them down, and all these other coalition nations with them, and they're going to invade my people. He goes, but it's not just me doing this. There's going to, it's going to be caused by a greed in their heart. Look at what he says in Ezekiel 38 verse 10. Thus says the Lord God, it shall also come to pass that at that same time shall things come into your mind, and you shall think an evil thought. You shall say, I will go up to the land of unwalled villages. I will go to them that are at rest, that dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates. And why are they going to go? To take a spoil and to take a prey, to take plunder. And the word here was a word, old English word for booty, you know, to to get riches. To turn your hand upon the desolate places that are now inhabited and upon the people that are gathered out of the nations, which have gotten them cattle and goods and dwell in the midst of the land. He says, you know, Ezekiel, remember, he's in Babylon writing at this time, uh, Judah's experiencing judgment, it's going to be a wasteland. And he says, someday the nation will be reborn, and Russia and these other nations are going to come down, and they're going to want to take all the things they've built, all the prosperity they've gained. But notice the conditions in Israel besides their prosperity. It mentions here there'll be a, a land of unwalled villages a land that's at rest, a land that de- dwells safely, all of them without walls. Now, those words do not seem to describe the situation in Israel currently, do they? Not at all. Nor do they even describe the situation before the horrors of October 7th. I have always struggled with the, the not politically or morally, I've struggled with the idea that, hey, is, is this Ezekiel 38 and 39? And I say, well, the wall's still up. Israel built a massive wall on the West Bank and also on the Gaza Strip between their nation and the Palestinian people. Again, I don't have a problem with them building it, but this prophecy seems to imply that that wall needs to come down at some point, that Israel will feel safe enough that they don't need it anymore, or at least that the wall is no longer relevant. Now, what's sadly and horrifically crazy is that the walls didn't work on October 7th. They didn't work. In fact, Israel's heavy military response to that massacre shows that the current leadership of Israel know they need something more than a wall to give them genuine safety. This attack is going to come to take all the prosperity that they have. It mentions upon the people that have been gathered out of the nations. This establishes that the Israel in this verse is the one regathered from Ezekiel 37, the one in our time. All the conditions of verse 12 already exist in Israel. They're prosperous, things are good from that side. But none of the conditions of verse 11 exist in Israel at this time. I bring this up because I've always assumed that the Palestinian army would be part of the invasion of Ezekiel 38 and 39, because which says Iran will be there and Hamas is a proxy of Iran. But after the events of October 7th and Israel's response to it and how this is going, and then I re-examined Ezekiel 38, I'm starting to wonder if that might be an incorrect assumption. See, this is a problem with prophecy. We don't know exactly how God's going to do what He says He's going to do. So we're doing our best to kind of guess. That's why I say I'm not going to tell you what's going to happen. I can only tell you what God says. And when we look at what God says, it's interesting. In Ezekiel 38 and 39, there's no mention of the Philistines. You might be saying, Why are you bringing up Philistines, Pastor Will? You may not know this, but Palestine's earliest meaning, as used by the Greeks and the Romans, is literally land of the Philistines. Palestinian means someone who dwells in the land of the Philistines. So. The Philistines are the closest approximation to the Palestinian people, even though there are no Philistines today. So, while the Palestinian army could be a part, or Hamas, or whatever, could be a part of the many people in verse six. It mentions all these nations, and then it says, "Many people will come with you." While they could be part of the many people of verse six, someone as important as in Israel's history as the Philistines—don't you think that would merit at least a mention? If the Philistines are not a part of the many people of verse 6, then that means something needs to happen regarding the Palestine-Israel issue before Ezekiel 38 and 39 occurs. Something has to happen. I've said for years that I believe the wall Israel built has to come down before this prophecy can occur. But maybe it's more complex than that. If Israel can, military, Israel's military can create a secure buffer zone between them and Gaza them in the West Bank, them in you know, South Lebanon? Would that finally give Israel a, p- a sense of genuine safety? It might. Or could possibly Israel's success in this war result in a real change of relationship to the Palestinian people? For example, if Hamas was elim- eliminated and other terrorist groups were eliminated there, would peace maybe finally be possible? We don't like to talk about this, but when you've been conquered or beaten down in war your attitude tends to change towards your enemy conversations between the united states and japan changed after we dropped two nuclear bombs on them i'm not justifying that i'm just saying when you're faced with that type of destruction your attitude changes towards your enemy and you start coming to the table and say let's have an honest conversation you say well how could peace ever be possible between israel And the Palestinian people. We've seen crazier things happen in the Middle East. Jordan and Egypt have treaties with Israel, had have long standing treaties with Israel, even though they were the main participants in multiple wars from 1948 to 1973. Israel currently has six peace treaties with predominantly Muslim Arab nations and is actively negotiating a seventh one with Saudi Arabia. That would have been unheard of if you talked to us ten years ago. And when we look at Scripture, are the Palestinian people destined to be at war with Israel forever? What does the Bible say there? Isaiah eleven sixteen has an interesting prophecy. It says that when Israel is reborn in the last days and the Messiah comes, it says that there will be a peaceful highway that will run from Assyria, modern-day North Iraq, and it will run all the way to modern-day Egypt, where we call modern-day Egypt, and it will be peace. But right before that, in verse 14, it mentions that that highway will be preceded by a military victory over the Philistines in the West and in the East. I never noticed that until I looked this time. If you look in Jewish history, you look in the Bible, the Philistines never controlled land to the East of Israel. Never. But the Palestinians do today. You have Gaza in the West, which is the traditional place the Philistines were and then they have the West Bank in the east. Isn't that interesting? Could this war eliminate Hamas and pave the way for the elimination of other terrorist organizations' hostile to Israel? And could the Palestinian people finally come to the negotiating table genuinely wanting to coexist with the Israeli people? I don't know. But if they did, I believe that would finally give Israel a genuine sense of peace for the first time since their rebirth of course, it could just as easily go the other way. If Israel is continuing to be successful and tries to create a buffer zone between them and the Palestinian people, that success could trigger the invasion of Ezekiel 38 and 39. These are all possibilities. The one thing I can tell you for sure, without a doubt, I know, and you have to know this too by looking at how they're handling this situation, that Israel will not go back to the way things were before October 7th. They cannot and they will not. Not after what happened. The way they're prosecuting this war makes that clear. Now, this war has led to awful living conditions for the Palestinian people as well as deaths of Palestinian civilians. This has brought up some interesting and I would say nonsensical arguments that are being made. Many in society are trying to address the conversation of evil by equivocating. For example, they'll say, yes, we know that Hamas raped, tortured, and murdered civilians, including defenseless women and children. But Israel's committing genocide against the Gazans, so we shouldn't focus so much on what happened on October 7th. If you know football, you know you've seen that when they have two personal fouls on a play. Now, personal fouls are not like you broke a rule. It's you were, you were mean to your opponent. I'm being silly, but, you know, you're mistreating your opponent. And sometimes that'll the other guy will hit back or something, and then they throw two flags. When that happens, the penalties get canceled out as if nothing happened, and then you go back and redo the play. Somehow, many in the world think that that kind of equivocation seems perfectly fine for terrorist atrocities. They are not the same thing. People will argue, yeah, but Israel's bombing buildings in Gaza that have innocents inside, to which I would say, sadly, that is war. There is still a big difference between burning a home with women and children in it, knowing they're there, knowing there are no soldiers inside, but trying to hit soldiers and unfortunately killing some civilians. There is a big difference. Sadly, that happens in war. It's one of the reasons Jesus said we'd wipe ourselves out if He didn't return and intervene. We have the capacity now with the weapons we have to wipe ourselves out. War is awful, even when there's a just reason. War was never a part of God's plan, but we rebelled against God and His perfect plan, and here we are. Does that make all the things that happen in war okay? No. But that's why our hope and our peace can't come from anything other than Jesus, not a political leader or a political policy or even economic prosperity. Our hope and our peace can come only from Jesus. The truth is no matter how successful israel is in this war no matter how much they're able to establish a measure of personal safety from the results of this war none of that none of that will prevent ezekiel 38 and 39 from happening and none of that will be what rescues them when that invasion occurs which is why the results of god's intervention during the events of ezekiel 38 and 39 will finally cause many in israel to turn to jesus when you read the end of Ezekiel 39 in verses 25 to 29, it says that then they will see that it's the Lord that delivered them. They will not be secular anymore, and many of them will turn to Jesus. Now, we have a lot of vitriol, a lot of nasty rhetoric that's going on in our nation right now regarding both the Jewish people and the Palestinian people. And I want to share some wisdom with you from someone I think is the best person to look to when it concerns this topic, and it is a Jewish believer named Joel Rosenberg. And I'm going to read you a long quote, because I think this is important to understand. He says this, you and I are passionate advocates of justice for Israel because of what the Bible teaches. We also must be passionate advocates of justice from Israel because of what the Bible teaches. This does not mean that Israel should divide the land. This does not mean that Israel should ignore her real and serious security needs. But too often, Christians who love Israel are not aware of or sufficiently concerned about and responsive to the plight of the Palestinian people, and in particular, the struggles of our Palestinian brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, are some of the political, moral, and historical charges of the Palestinians against Israel overblown? Yes, Is some of the rhetoric of the Palestinians against Israel, Jews and Christians who love Israel, hyperbolic and unfair? Yes. But are the Palestinian people struggling in real and very painful ways? Yes. The truth is they are. And we should care because Jesus cared. Much of this struggle, he says, has been caused by unwise and godly choices by their leaders and their Arab and Islamic allies in the region and by the terror groups in their midst. But is some of this pain sometime caused by or exacerbated by Israeli mistakes, excesses, and even sins? Unfortunately, he says, the answer is yes. While the Bible clearly explains that the Lord will bring the Jewish people back to the land of Israel and allow them to reclaim their God-given ownership of the land, nowhere in the Bible are Jews or any group of people given a license to commit injustice. To the contrary, he says, the Bible teaches Israel to love her neighbors, Leviticus 19.18. The Bible also teaches Israel to love her neighbors and to pray for those who persecute them, Matthew 5.44. The Jewish people, he says, do have rights to the ownership of the land, but they also have responsibilities to govern justly and compassionately in accordance with the Scriptures those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ need to not just preach, but also to practice sound Bible doctrine regarding Israel and the Palestinians. We need to love both. We need to bless both, and we need to pray for both. And we need to stand with and encourage our brothers and sisters in the Messiah, whether they are Jewish or Arab. The Bible gives us no freedom to ignore, deny, or oppose our brothers and sisters on either side. And he reminds us in Matthew 5.9 that Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Now, one of the other prophetic events, topics that the Israel-Hamas war has brought into the limelight, is not just Ezekiel 38 and 39, but also that anti-Semitism will be at an all-time high during the Great Tribulation. Current events show us that it's way higher already than anyone could have thought. I'll just give you some facts about American antisemitism. This is a quote from CBSNews.com. The Anti-Defamation League said it recorded 2,031 anti-Semitic incidences nationwide between October 7th and December 7th. 2,031 hate incidences in two month period. Then he said, "It says this. That's up 465 incidences. Incidents. Which word is it? Incidents. That's up." 465 incidents over the same two-month period in 2022. The article says it's the highest number of any two-month period since they've been tracking anti-Semitic incidents in 1979. These incidents include 40 uh, 40 reports of physical assault, 337 reports of vandalism, 749 reports of verbal or written harassment, and 905 rallies that involved expressions of support, support for terrorism against the state of Israel. Jewish people across America, again, this is the article, not me, Jewish people across America have experienced experienced an average of almost 34 anti-Semitic incidents each day since October 7th. ADL CEO Cassie Hunt said on October 30th, a mob tearing through an airport in Russia searching for Jews to lynch is terrifying, but it is equally terrifying for a student from Cornell to find on the general message board a post that says, slit the throats of Jews. What we have seen from U.S. college campuses and from U.S. college presidents over the last few months has been disgusting. But even with that, the real question no one seems to be pointing out is this. Why is 2031 incidents only up by 465 from last year? Why are Jewish people regularly targeted almost 1,000 times per month at any time of the year? FBI Director Christopher Wray said of the Jewish American community on October 24th, quote, our statistics would indicate that for a group that represents only about 2.4% of the American public, they account for something like 60% of all religious, American religious-based hate crimes. That's ridiculous. Why is that number so high? And why is it just as bad, if not worse, in other nations around the world? Why is there so much hatred for one group of people from so many nations who, after the Nazi Holocaust, vowed never again? It makes no sense. But as a good friend of mine is in the habit of saying, when something evil seems to make no sense, there's only one answer. It's just demonic, Will. How is Jewish hatred possible after the events of the Holocaust? Why does humanity not learn from history but repeat the same evils over and over again? Well, first off, it's because there's something deeper going on, something supernatural, the mystery of iniquity, Satan's plan. In John 8, chapter, chapter 8, verse 43, Jesus, when talking about the enemy of our souls, he said this about the devil. In John eight forty three, he says, Why do you not understand my speech? because you're of your father the devil you know we look at the Bible and you read it and you think how do you guys not see what you're doing how do you not see that Jesus is the Messiah how do you not see you see the miracles you see the things he's saying you see you listen to his preaching how do you not know how do you take the course of action that you took because there was more going on than just people Jesus explains why don't you understand me because you're of your father the devil You're involved in the rebellion. You're of your father the devil, and so the lust of your father you'll do. He was a murderer from the beginning. He didn't remain in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own or from out of his own nature or from out of his own plan. For he's a liar and the father, the originator of it. In other words, things don't make sense because there's someone behind the scenes orchestrating a deception Jesus said in John 10, verse 3, that all the others that came before him, all the false teachers, they were liars and they were thieves, deceivers. When we look at history, why is there this long line of deceivers over centuries? Why do we keep listening to them and why do we keep repeating the same mistakes? It should cause us to go, hmm, maybe there's a common denominator, Because there is. There's a plan, an organized one, which means there's a planner behind it. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul the Apostle pulls back the curtain a little bit for us so we can see. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul was writing a letter to these Christians in Thessalonica and he had taught them about end time stuff. He explained things to them, how it was going to be, what was going to happen. Well, he was only with them for about four weeks. And so while they understood some of it, they were confused about some of it too. And so they had received some letters purporting to be from apostles saying, we're in the great tribulation right now. They had someone had come to them and said, an angel told me that we missed the rapture. And so they were writing, saying, do we miss the rapture? Can you, can you explain to us again about you know, the rapture and about Christ's return, and how that all works? And Paul says, Okay. Don't be deceived, verse 3, let no man deceive you by any means, for that day the return of Christ shall not come except there be a falling away first, and that man of sin, the Antichrist, be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So until you start seeing this global apostasy, of falling away, uh, you know, a large falling away, and then in addition to that, you see the, the Antichrist in charge, and he's he put an image of himself in the temple in Jerusalem. We're not there. So don't let anybody deceive you. We're not there yet. And he tells him in verse 5, don't you remember that when I was yet with you, I told you those things? Anyone that tells you that end-time stuff isn't important, Paul was only with him for four weeks, and he'd already talked about end-time stuff with him. When you're starting off with people, new believers, you probably start with the important stuff, right? Apparently, end times was important enough to start t- teaching them. But verse 6, he goes, I remember you, I taught you, and so you know what I'm about to say. You know what withholds or holds back that he might be, the Antichrist might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity does already work. In other words, Satan's plan is constantly in motion, constantly trying to bring it about, but God will come to him at a certain point and he goes, not yet. And then he smacks it down and then life goes back to sanity again for a bit. But we have these periods in history where we see Satan trying to bring his plan about and God says, not yet. And then things get insane for a bit, nothing makes any sense, the world goes crazy, and then it comes back down, and then it comes again, and then it comes back down, and then it comes again. We're not in the come back down part. We're in the insanity part. He says, You know this. I taught you this. And only he who now is holding back will hold back until he takes himself out of the way. And then shall that wicked one, the Antichrist, be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him, the Antichrist, whose coming is after who? The working of Satan. It's his plan. Satan is in rebellion to God. For millennia, he's been seeking to raise up a man who will deceive humanity into also rebelling against God. His first attempt was Nimrod with the Tower of Babel. There have been numerous other attempts all throughout history. But Satan is not God's equal. He's not God's opposite. And so God has a plan that overrides his plan. And all God has to say is, no, you're done. And so until God's plan allows for Satan's plan to come to fruition, we're going to see periods of deception in history. Now, this rebellion of the enemy is trying to stir up has two goals, murder Israel, murder humanity. And so, when we see rising anti-Semitism, it's a time, a sign of something supernatural going on, something that doesn't make sense. Satan is trying yet again to bring about a global rebellion against God with the goal of destroying the Jewish people and then afterwards destroying humanity. So why do we keep falling for it? Why, when we've been here so many times before? Why, when we vowed never again? Well, because there's not just one reason, there's a second reason. We're not good. We're not good people. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, it tells us who we were before we came to Christ. He says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, he says, we're in times past, you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the enemy, the spirit, the angel who now works in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all lived our lives in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we're by nature the children of wrath, even as others. We're not good. Satan can't control us. But because we're not good and we don't turn to the Lord, we willingly go for His deception every time because we choose to disobey God. We believe we are good. We don't need a Savior, that humanity can rise above. We're evolving. We're getting better. Really? That's why we have massive wholesale anti-Semitism going on in our educational system? That sounds like an improvement to you. sounds to me like we're just the same. And that pride-filled lie that we're getting better, we don't need the Lord, we can do this on our own, that pride, it deceives us and opens us up to Satan's greater deception. So again, that's why our goal can't be just to change governments or national policy. Our goal as a church needs to be to change individual people, because individual salvation is the only lasting and meaningful rescue we can invest in because even if we get good leaders for a bit, the only lasting rescue for governments or national policy is the return of Christ. You say, well, what do we do then while Christ tarries? What are God's instructions until Jesus comes back to fix that? Well, that's where the hope part comes in. You see, God gave the people of Judah a message from Isaiah the prophet specifically about how He wants us to respond to His prophecies. And we'll close with looking at that. I'm not closing yet. Don't get your hopes up. I'll, we'll close by looking at Isaiah 42. So turn to Isaiah 42 with me. This will be the third topic that I think the Hamas-Israel war has brought into the limelight. Ezekiel 38:39, the rise of hatred towards the Jewish people. And then this exhortation from the Lord in Isaiah 42. Now, you have to know the context of Isaiah 42 to get it. It's written to the nation of Judah, who have been told by Isaiah and many other prophets that their judgment's coming. They've gone too far. Babylon's going to come, attack them, defeat them, take them captive. The temple, the city will be destroyed, and they'll be in exile for their sins. Now, does that sound like there's a lot of hope in that sermon? No. No. If I came here this morning and said, uh, ah, we're going to get conquered by Mexico, and we're going to get taken captive, and all our institutions are going, you know, blah, 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 blah we're done. Two years, we're done. That wouldn't be very hope-filled. But then when Isaiah gets to the latter part of his prophecies, his messages, he says, ah, but there is hope still. And then the Lord instructs Isaiah to speak words of comfort to his people because he's not going to judge them forever. There is hope because he promises to restore to them their land and to send their Messiah to set up the kingdom this chapter's message falls into that section of hope. And it's specifically designed. It's given to a people who are living in dark times to show them how they can have hope for today, the day they're living in, and for the future, tomorrow, as things keep getting worse and worse. And the way that they would do that is by responding properly to God's prophecies. Isaiah calls them to respond in three ways to God's prophecies that will give them hope. And he starts off here in verse 8. In Isaiah 42, verse 8, through Isaiah, the Lord says, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you about them. He says, you know I'm saying it's true. I predicted that certain things would happen, and they've happened. You've seen it. And now I'm predicting other things, and you know I speak the truth. So you know they will happen. In other words, verse 9 is saying that fulfilled and unfilled prophecy should get our attention. And reading both about the things that God has fulfilled and the things that haven't happened yet should cause us to realize just how awesome our God is. Which is why the Lord tells him in verse 10, he says, in light of this truth, that I've said things will happen and they did, and I've said other things will happen and they haven't yet, that you know you can count on, they'll happen though. He says, in light of that, verse 10, sing unto the Lord a new song and His praise from the end of the earth. You that go down to the sea and all that's there in it, the isles, the inhabitants thereof, let the wilderness and the cities thereof lift up their voice. Let the villages of Kedar, that Kedar does inhabit, let the inhabitants of the rocks sing. Let them shout from the top of the mountains and let them give glory unto the Lord and declare His praise unto the coastlands. In other words, our first call to prophecy is to stop and worship. To stop and worship. Listen, when we see all the horrible things that Satan's plan has brought about, when you hear the stories of, of war and, of course, the, the awful massacre that was perpetrated against Jewish civilians on October 7th, when you see those things or think about those things, it can feel frightening, angering, and, or even discouraging. We should weep over lost lives and lost souls and war and hatred. We must never be shocked or lose hope or become terrified or think we've got to take matters in our own hands. What we need to do first is stop and pause and worship the Lord because He's more powerful than anything the enemy or humanity can do. And the one who's more powerful than anything the enemy or humanity can do promises in the end, He will deal with it. Look at verse 13. He says, Praise Him. The Lord will go forth as a mighty man. He shall stir up jealousy like a man of war. He shall cry, yea, roar, and he shall prevail against his enemies. The Lord's speaking here. He says, I have long time held my peace. I've been still. God's looking ahead to the future of how he's held back and not intervened for his people. He's watched the Holocaust happen. He's watched all these terrorist things that have occurred. But there's going to come a time when he says, I have done it, and I'm done. Now I will cry like a woman in labor. I'm going to destroy and devour at once, and I will make waste mountains and hills. I will dry up all the plants. I will make the rivers, islands, and I will dry up the pools. And then I will bring the blind by a way that they know not. I will lead them in paths that they have not known. I will make darkness light before them, and I will make crooked things straight. These things will I do unto them, and I will not forsake them. The first thing that we do when we look at prophecy, it calls us to stop, to pause, and to worship. But the second thing it calls us to do is to trust in the Lord. We aren't the ones who are going to stop the mystery of iniquity. Jesus isn't asking for your help. He's the one who's going to stop it. Just last Sunday, former Vice President Mike Pence was in Israel, and He said, quote, we need to secure the borders of the United States lest the American people suffer invasion and slaughter by terrorists along the lines of what Israel suffered on October 7th. I like Mike Pence. I'm all for strong borders in our nation. But that's not going to guarantee our safety. You want to trust in a wall? Fine. Or border safety or different policy? Fine. You'll be let down at some point. Fear-mongering over a situation that isn't even a close to what happened in Israel is not how the Lord wants us to respond to the mystery of iniquity. Israel has some of the strongest border policies in the world, and it still happened to them. The efforts of man, no matter how well thought out, I'm not saying I, I want good policy, I want wise leaders, and I would exhort you to vote for people who do the same. Don't vote for fools. But the efforts of man, no matter how well thought out, are no match for the enemy. In Daniel eleven thirty six 36-43, it says that multiple coalitions, global coalitions of nations are going to come against the Antichrist, and they're going to fail. We are no match for the enemy. Only Jesus will be victorious over the Antichrist. The whole point of Ezekiel 38 and 39 is that no matter how secure Israel makes themselves, it's only the Lord who will defeat their enemies. It's not going to be their military might, their technological superiority, their national unity, or even their good will in the region. Trusting in something other than the Lord leads us into deception. That's what verse 17 says. He says, this is what I'll do for them. But he goes, but they shall be turned back. They'll be greatly ashamed that trusting graven images that say to the molten images, you are our gods. That truth has application for us today because our only guarantee of safety is to trust in the Lord. Listen, I'm a parent. I'm a dad. I'm a husband. I sense the burden of responsibility to protect and care for my family. But no amount of weaponry or security around my home is going to make me sufficient against an enemy that I can't even see. Only Jesus is protecting me whether it's from just some poor fool with a machete who's looking for some food and going to break into my house, or it's some organized attack of the enemy. The only one who can truly give me lasting safety and peace at night to sleep is not my ability to protect my family, but his ability to protect my family. He's the only legitimate reason a person can have peace and hope in dark days. So trust in him, he says. He says. See my word, my prophecies. Trust in me, worship me, trust me. And lastly, he says, "Listen to my word." Verse eighteen: Hear you deaf, and look you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger? He's describing Israel at this time that I sent. Who is blind as he that is perfect, and blind as the Lord's servant, seeing many things but you don't observe? Hear, opening the ears, but he doesn't hear. So I speak to my people; they hear the sermons, but they're not listening. He said, the Lord is well pleased for his righteousness' sake. He will magnify the law and make it honorable. Jesus, what he's doing now before he returns, he's proclaiming, you need my righteousness. You need my law. You need my word. That's what's going to give you stability and peace and hope in difficult times. God says to his people, listen up. Open your eyes. I'm magnifying my word to you so you can know what to do when you see awful times coming. The Jewish people that Isaiah was preaching to, they weren't listening to God's Word. That's why judgment was coming. But even though that judgment would not be avoided, they could have peace and hope in dark days by listening to God's Word and doing what it says. If we don't listen to God's Word and we don't do what it says, we will struggle in dark times. We will respond incorrectly to learning about prophecy, which is why Isaiah 42 closes with these words. He says, I want to magnify my word to you. I'm telling you to listen, but you're not. This is a people robbed and spoiled. They're all of them snared in holes. They're hidden prison houses. They're for a prey and no one delivers them. For a spoil, And no one says, hey, give that back to them. Who among you will give ear to this? Who will hearken and listen for the time to come? In other words, these things are coming. Will anybody listen? So that you can live rightly now, have hope now, and hope for tomorrow? He says, who gave Jacob for a spoil in Israel to the robbers? Did not the Lord? For they would not walk in his ways. Against whom we have sinned. For they would not walk in his ways, neither were they obedient unto his law. That's why he poured upon them the fury of his anger and the strength of the battle. And it set him on fire round about. He doesn't even know it. He doesn't know it came from the Lord. He's on fire. He doesn't realize it. He doesn't realize the Lord's dealing with him. It burned him, yet he laid it not to heart. If we don't listen to God's word and do what it says, we will struggle in dark times. I don't know if we're headed for the time when the Lord says, okay, Satan, you can go ahead with your plan because now is a time for me to finally deal with evil in the world. I don't know. I don't know if God's going to at some point say, okay, enough insanity. This is not time yet. And we go back to some sense of sanity. I don't know. I don't know what the Lord's plan is. I don't know his timing. No man knows the day or the hour, the Bible says. But I can say this, Satan is clearly trying to bring about his plan right now. And I don't want to miss out on what God has for me because I refuse to listen to what his word says. Amen? Just a few decades, and as the team comes up to close us out, just a few decades after Isaiah predicted judgment, Judah would find themselves surrounded by enemies. And sadly, what happened on October 7th is only a glimpse of what will happen when the world does it. The whole world surrounds them again, sadly. Zechariah 14, 1 and 2, it prophesied that Jerusalem will become a, a, a pit of trouble where just they'll be surrounded by multiple nations. No foreign government will be able to help them even if those governments wanted to. The Lord will be their only hope of rescue. And the Bible says in Zechariah chapter 13, verses 3 and 4, that He will roar from heaven again, and He will rescue them. So, just as Israel's only hope, only real hope is Jesus our hope too is in Jesus. And while he tarries, his prophecies call us to, number one, worship him for how powerful, and how wise he is. Number two, to trust in him and to not look to ourselves or others for answers. And number three, to listen to his word. So let's make 2024, no matter how dark this year gets, a year where we answer his call to respond to prophecy correctly. Amen? Amen. Let's all stand. Well, Lord Jesus, you have been so good to us that you've told us what will happen beforehand. And you've pled. you pled with the nation of Judah and said, will you not listen and respond to the things that are coming? Lord, we're not Israel. We know that. You have a, a beautiful and separate plan for them and, and we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, Lord. Pray for an end to this, this war and safety and, and security for both Israel and, Lord, the Palestinian people who are not involved with Hamas. But, Lord, in the meantime... We do believe that this is a word that still applies to us about how to respond to prophecy. So Lord, we want to pause and worship you. In 2024, we want to be those who, Lord, trust you and not others or ourselves. And Lord, that we listen to your word. So Lord, as we commit that to you, will you fill us with your spirit that we can live it out? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.